0: Section 26 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide, Part 3. THE GOSS UTTERZUK TRAGEDY, PART Two. Time wore on with the development of nothing more satisfactory for the defence than has been mentioned. It was therefore desirable to learn what light, if any, could be thrown upon the matter by an exhumation and examination of the charred remains which had been buried as those of Goss. At the inquest which had been held upon the body, it was observed that although the extremities were more or less consumed, the head was entire, and it was believed the bones of the skull, including the teeth, were uninjured. Any peculiarity of the teeth, whether natural or arising from mechanical dentistry, might at once determine the question of identity of these remains. An effort was made to obtain a description of any such peculiarity, if it existed, for the purpose indicated. In pursuance of this information, every dentist in Baltimore was interrogated, but with only negative results. So far as could be ascertained, Goss was known to have had unusually good teeth which were conspicuous in his ordinary conversation, and were fully exposed when he laughed. From no source could it be learned that he had had occasion to employ a dentist. Mrs. Goss had testified before the coroner to certain facts touching the size and general figure of her husband's person, which facts had reference to identity with the burned body, and therefore a verbal request was made of her, through her spiritual adviser, the Rev. Dr. Fuller of Baltimore, that she would make a more elaborate description, especially of his teeth, and grant permission for the exhumation and examination." This request was made through Dr. Fuller because of his proffered assistance, as he expressed it, to get at the truth of the matter. The result of Dr. Fuller's efforts to arrive at the truth may be deduced from the following note sent by him as the conclusion of his labors in that direction. Baltimore, January 3, 1873. My dear sir, I have seen Mrs. Goss, She says that, knowing it was her husband, and grieving over her sorrow, she yet summoned resolution, and believes she testifies to all she knew, and that others did the same. She has been so shocked at the suspicion in the case, cast upon the memory of her husband, that she has resolved to commit the matter to the God of the widow and the afflicted, and to speak no more on a subject so abhorrent to all her feelings. Very respectfully, dear sir, R. Fuller. Mrs. Goss had determined that an exhumation should not be made, and had obviously silenced her officious pastor's inquiry into the validity of her claim to the insurance. But this did not arrest or discourage an effort looking to the thorough examination of the charred body over which Dr. Fuller had held solemn burial service. This purpose led to the following correspondence, which sufficiently explains itself. Baltimore, January 22, 1873. To Milton Whitney and Henry V. D. Johns, Esquires, Counselors, etc. Gentlemen, the undersigned, counsel respectively of the Mutual Life Insurance Company, the Knickerbocker Life Insurance Company, and the Travelers Insurance Company, defendants in suits brought by you in behalf of Mrs. Eliza W. Goss, to recover upon policies issued by said companies upon the life of Winfield S. Gauss, respectfully ask your attention to the following suggestions. As you are by this time probably aware, the defense relied upon in these suits is that proofs of loss required by the terms of the policies have not been furnished to the satisfaction of the several companies, and are not, in fact, such as we can advise our clients, will warrant them in paying the large amounts involved. The extraordinary circumstances under which it is claimed the insured met his death, you must in fairness admit, called for unusual care and particularity in proving the loss, and takes the case out of the ordinary class as to which there can be no reasonable doubt of loss. The proofs furnished are on their face plainly insufficient, they are not such as are required by the policies, and proper to be given, even in cases of death free from unusual circumstances, and these objections on the part of the companies that your proofs were insufficient, were brought to your notice prior to bringing suit. We wish most plainly to give you to understand that our companies resist this claim with no captious spirit and with no speculative object, and that they only require such proofs as are reasonable, and such as they think they have a right to expect the plaintiff to be able to produce, if she can give reasonably conclusive evidence that the body buried in February last as that of Winfield Asgas, the insured was really his, we are authorized to assure you that her claims will be admitted and paid at once. It is more agreeable for the companies to pay than to contest and they are determined to afford you every opportunity to remove their doubts and to meet their requirements to the most ample manner the case will admit. It is obvious that the most decisive and satisfactory proof on this point is to be derived from the body itself buried as that of Goss, provided it be in such a state as to admit of identification, and we can hardly suppose that it existed in such a condition as to authorize the finding of the coroner's jury, and to warrant the drawing of the affidavits presented as proofs of death, and yet that it was so far disfigured and consumed as to afford no points of recognition. If the body was that of Winfield S. Goss, there must have been, and must still be, some physical marks, characteristics, or peculiarities known to Mrs. Goss, or to other relatives or friends, by which it can be recognized." that every person has such marks, recognizable by someone, can hardly be doubted, and we believe such exist in this case, which may be found if carefully sought for, and which will go far, if not prove quite effectual, to decide this question. For the purpose of enabling you to meet these requirements of proof, we are authorized to make the following propositions. First, Mrs. Goss is to furnish us with an accurate written description of Winfield S. Goss to be made specific upon these points. Height, average weight, shape, or figure. Age in February last. Size and shape of head and skull, as far as can be stated, to be verified by the production of a hat once worn by him, if it can be had. Description of his teeth, their quality and appearance whether wholly or partially sound or defective, natural or artificial, whether he had any peculiar teeth, had lost any, and how many and what teeth, had any teeth broken, and how many and what teeth and how broken, had any teeth filled or otherwise operated upon by a dentist, and how, where, and when operated upon, and by what dentist, the color, quantity, and quality of his hair, beard, or whiskers, in what style worn in February last, any peculiarity about his nails or joints, whether he had any and what fracture or other wound of a serious or permanent nature, and covering such other points as would be presumed to lead to an identification of his person. Second, such statement, as full as Mrs. Goss is enabled to make it, and signed by her, being first furnished us, We propose that she shall then permit the body in question to be exhumed and subjected to a careful, exhaustive scientific examination by medical or other experts to be selected by counsel on each side. The examination is to be attended by counsel, and all expenses are to be borne by the insurance companies represented by us. Should such an examination be had, it is probable that one of three things would result. Either, first, the remains would appear to be those of Winfield S. Goss, the insured, in which event we should feel bound to advise our companies it was useless further to defend these suits. Or, second, the remains would appear to be not those of Winfield S. Goss, the insured, in which event we might fairly expect you to advise your client her case was hopeless. Or, third, The remains would be incapable of identification, and nothing would appear from them to the advantage or disadvantage of either party. We are, gentlemen, respectfully yours, etc., etc., Edward Otis Hinckley, attorney for the Mutual Life Insurance Company, Marshall and Fisher, attorneys for Knickerbocker Life Insurance Company, A. Sterling, Jr. and George H. Chandler, attorneys for Travelers Insurance Company. Baltimore, January 25, 1873. Gentlemen, in reply to your communication of the 22nd instant, we furnish evidence of our acquiescence in your first proposition by enclosing herewith a written description of the late Winfield S. Goss, signed by Mrs. Eliza W. Goss, following the order of your suggestions and as specific as it was in her power to make it. To your second proposition, Mrs. Goss also sorrowingly but promptly signifies her acquiescence if the companies you represent desire such steps taken. At the exhumation and examination of the remains of her husband, she will be represented by two medical gentlemen, by her counsel, and by a few of those who superintended the interment, upon whom she can rely to identify the body as that she committed to the ground. Preliminary to the scientific examination which you suggest should now be made. Please accept Mrs. Goss's thanks for the assurance you give her in your communication of the twenty second that the two propositions and the suggestions therein contained are made by your respective companies in candor and good faith, and in no speculative or captious intendment and that she may at last realize the truth of those arguments in favor of the value and necessity of life insurance, and of the special advantages of your corporations, which their agents, during an interval of many years, so urgently presented to her husband. As far as the payment of the amounts due upon these policies is concerned, it is a mere business matter, and should be dealt with as such, but, in view of the imputations cast upon the memory of the deceased, and upon the characters of the living, and the invasion of the most sensitive relations of domestic life, and into the very privacies of the grave itself, which this defense involves, we are glad to know that now, in your hands, the matter will be more mercifully conducted than it has been heretofore." The necessity and propriety of such consideration was made apparent today to ourselves, as we were given an account of the severity of the ordeal through which this lady has passed. Its first scene was upon the occasion of the bringing back of the body of her husband to the privacy of his house. We are informed that after giving sufficient searching scrutiny for an instant, hoping it should not be him, the fact of his identity in her mind was evidenced by her throwing herself upon the poor charred form, and clinging to it, until removed by the strong arms of others, and that shortly after this pitiful reunion, the detectives sent by the defendants were at the house to see them. Thanking you for the relief given by your letter, and with the request that you will name an early day for the proposed examination, we are, with great respect, very truly yours, Whitney and John's, Attorneys for Eliza W. Goss. Baltimore, January 25, 1873. I make and sign the following statement in response to the request contained in a letter dated January 22, 1873, addressed by the counsel of three of the insurance companies against whom I have claims, to my counsel, Messrs. Whitney and Johns. Winfield S. Goss, my husband, was about five feet eight inches in height, and would have weighed, at the time of his death, I should think, one hundred and sixty-five pounds. He was of full figure, broad, deep chest, stood very erect, short, full neck. Was, to the best of my recollection, thirty-six years of age on the 4th of November, 1871. He had a broad, intelligent forehead, resembling in general outline that of his brother A. C. Goss. He wore about seven or seven and a quarter size hat. His hat last purchased was destroyed at the time of his death, I believe burned up. I have an old felt hat once used by him, and will produce this at the time of the proposed exhumation. I have a velvet vest once worn by him, though this was too small for him, and had been laid aside some time previous to his death. This shall be also produced. I gave away in charity most of his clothes after his death, most of them to a poor man who was injured at a sawmill. Owing to the circumstance of his having usually worn a moustache long enough to partially conceal his teeth, I am not able to describe them very accurately. He wore no artificial teeth, to my knowledge, never complained of pain or inconvenience from decayed teeth, and I do not remember his requiring the services of a dentist during the time we lived together. I should call his front teeth quite regular. His hair was dark brown. In earlier years it was curly. About the time of his death he wore it trimmed closer than formerly, and it was not so curly. He would brush his hair, and then pass his fingers through it, wearing it lightened up, and very much in the style in which his brother, A. C. Goss, now wears his hair. I preserved for a time a small piece of hair cut from the back of his head, at the time of his preparation for burial, supposed to have been taken from the place on which his head rested. But it must have been touched by the fire, and soon fell to powder. Can remember no singularities of nails or joints." his nails were regular, his hands were well-formed, and small in proportion to his size. My impression is, I have a glove once worn by him, and if so, I will produce it with his clothes above referred to. He had neither fracture nor wound to my knowledge. I would state also, as it may throw additional light upon the description sought, that my husband and Mr. J.W. Langley, The gentleman connected with the Continental Life Insurance Company, were photographed together some months before his death, and that I will endeavor to produce also one of the pictures. The photographs were taken by Mr. Bachrock, an artist whose place of business is on the corner of Lexington and Utah streets. I have recently had a copy of my husband's likeness taken from the negative in his possession, to send to the parent of my husband, to his mother. ELIZA W. GOSS. Upon receipt of the statement signed by Mrs. Goss, arrangements were at once made for the purpose indicated by the foregoing correspondence. Professor F. T. Miles, M.D., and R. Y. Song, M.D., were selected by the counsel of Mrs. Goss to be present and assist in the examination. Professor E. Lloyd Howard, M.D., and Professor F. I. S. Gorgeous, M.D., Were selected to represent the insurance companies. The last named, being an eminent dentist, was specifically qualified for this work. The necessary preparations being made, the exhumation was conducted in presence of counsel representing all parties in interest, the medical gentleman already named, and the consulting surgeon of one of the insurance companies. A. C. Goss and William E. Utterzook also were present and both were closely observant spectators of the proceedings. A superficial inspection of the remains was made at the graveside, and the coffin with its contents was then taken away for a more critical examination. A. C. Goss objected to such removal, and endeavored to have no examination made, save such as could be made on the ground. On finding that the physicians could not and would not conduct their work in such a place, he and the legal adviser of Mrs. Goss gave their reluctant consent to a removal of the remains. The following is a copy of the report submitted by the examining surgeons. The undersigned, appointed to examine certain remains interred in Baltimore Cemetery, met by agreement in the cemetery on the afternoon of Monday, February 10, 1873 the grave was in soft, clayey soil about five feet deep. On being opened, the coffin was found enclosed in a wooden box, both the box and coffin in a good state of preservation, and both filled with water. On removing the lid of the coffin, which bore a plate marked W. S. Goss, died February 2, 1872, in the thirty-seventh year of his age, the charred remains of a corpse were disclosed, wrapped in a white cloth. After a superficial inspection, the coffin was closed and placed in a wagon to be removed to the city. On the following day, February 11th, the undersigned met at the College of Physicians and Surgeons and proceeded to a careful examination of the remains. The coffin was again opened and showed remains to be in the same condition as on previous day. A complete examination revealed the following facts. The soft tissues of the body were almost entirely destroyed, apparently by fire. Those not so destroyed were converted into adipocere and afforded no indications for determining any points of interest or importance. There were found lying to the back of the head, portions of the scalp, entirely separated from the skull, covered with hair about one inch in length. The proper color of the hair could not be well determined." as it might have been stained by the fluid in which it lay. It presented a dark, almost black appearance. The skull was entire, except portions of the maxillary bones, to be afterwards more fully described. The skeleton is here examined in detail, and a minute description given of each and every bone which escaped destruction by fire. The skull was of full size, measuring 22 inches in circumference around the forehead and occipital protuberance, round and well-formed. The chest was deep and capacious. The bones of the trunk and limbs were thick, with large articular extremities, and strongly marked at the points of muscular attachment. The bones presented no indications of disease, fracture, or other injury other than those caused by burning as specified above the teeth were defective to the extent shown in the detailed statement which is appended to this report. From a careful and critical examination of the remains, the undersigned feel fully authorized in forming the following conclusions. First, the remains were those of a male. Second, he was not a Negro. Third, he was between the ages of twenty-five and fifty years. Fourth, he was of fair, average height, of stout build, and of great muscular strength. Fifth, It is impossible to determine whether the burning was the cause of death or was post-mortem. F. T. Miles, M.D., R. Y. Song M.D., E. Lloyd Howard, M.D., F. I. S. Gorgeous, M.D., Baltimore, February 13, 1873. CONDITION OF MAXILLARY OR JAW BONES Superior maxillary, perfect except margin of alveolar process. Inferior maxillary, a portion of the external surface of body of the bone below the alveolar process and to the right of the median line, including the right mental foramen, destroyed for a space of 2.5 inches long and 1 inch broad or wide, the bone otherwise perfect. Number of teeth remaining in upper jaw, 2. Number of teeth remaining in lower jaw, including one root of tooth, seven. Condition of the two teeth in upper jaw. Superior right second bicuspid, a superficial carious cavity on posterior proximal surface. Cusps on grinding surface worn away by mechanical abrasion, but not so much as to wholly obliterate the natural depressions on this surface. Superior right third molar, perfectly sound. Condition of the seven teeth in lower jaw. Root of inferior right central incisor. The crown evidently destroyed by caries to a point below free margin of the gum before death. Inferior right lateral incisor, perfectly sound. Inferior right canine, sound. Angle worn away by mechanical abrasion. Inferior left central incisor. Various cavities on both proximal surfaces, which communicated. Inferior left canine, carious cavity on the anterior proximal surface. Inferior left second bicuspid, small carious cavity on the anterior proximal surface. Inferior left third molar, large carious cavity on the buccal surface near neck, superficial cavity on grinding surface. Grinding surface worn by mechanical abrasion so as to almost obliterate the natural depressions on the surface. Form of irregularity of inferior front teeth. Approximal surfaces of the inferior right lateral incisor and inferior left central incisor approach near together at the cutting edges, caused by the loss of the crown on the right central incisor, the root of this latter tooth remaining in the alveolar cavity. As a result of this examination, the insurance companies were advised that it would be impossible to reconcile the dissimilitude between the diseased jaws and mouth of this almost toothless corpse and the mouth of W. S. Goss as described in the statement signed by his wife. That statement declares he had, never complained of pain or inconvenience from decayed teeth, and I do not remember his requiring the services of a dentist during the time we lived together. I should call his front teeth quite regular." As Mrs. Goss had been married to W. S. Goss some fourteen years, during which time they had lived together, it is fair to presume she necessarily would have heard complaints of pain and inconvenience from such badly decayed teeth and jaws, that she would have remembered the required services of the dentist who had extracted so many of these teeth and that she would not have called such front teeth quote, "quite regular" end, quote. end of section 26